Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. I am joined for this reasonable conversation by my friend, the Anon Burning Bright, who is an absolutely spectacular writer, and you should be following his Substack, burningbright.substack.com. And we're going to discuss evil. So, Burning Bright, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, light, nice light, nice light uh, topic to start things off, right? Now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Well, I I think we can have fun with it at least from yeah. a uh, philosophical and cult- cultural standpoint. I don't think that we will be conducting any evil ourselves, <laughs> so we can we can keep it nice and light. So you wrote a piece that came out a couple of days ago about the fable of the boy who cried wolf, and I was hoping you could give us a little synopsis of that and maybe some background on yourself and how you got into the movement and how you came to decide to write about the movement. Um, the starting at the first one, the boy who cried wolf. Um, I wrote a piece the other day called cry wolf. And, um, it's interesting. There's some things on my Substack that I've kind of got planned weeks in advance and I've, you know, been turning over for a long time. That was one that just, the entire thing was uh, stream of consciousness. So that that whole article was I I sat down. I think the idea was prompted by a conversation on Truth Social, which I've been finding has been happening a lot. 
Yeah. I actually got another uh, idea today for an article I want to do in a couple of weeks from just going back and forth with a few people on something. But, um, you know, it wasn't prompted by any kind of research, but I think something that I'm finding people are maybe attaching to some of the the way in which I, I don't know if it's the way I write or the way I think about things and present that, but I've uh, I've always been somebody who looks for like the story underneath the story, I say, and um, I have to be careful. I always say uh, without without doxing things I used to do, I used to say um, the best moves are the moves made between beats or between decisions. Mm. And uh, I, you know, the best, the best athletes, the best fighters, the best, whatever you want to call it. They're the people who make decisions between decisions and they don't look at the surface of how something is supposed to be done. They try to, they try to look for basically the origins of where the move came from. And I've kind of applied that. So for whatever reason, the boy who cried wolf popped into my head uh, as most people, most people who started following me or the early people who started following me was all about Russia stuff, which, you know, we can get into, but that's, that ties into the cry wolf article where, um, it's, it's prompted a big examination of kind of not necessarily literal evil, but it's prompted an examination by me of what has been portrayed as evil. Mm-hmm. to specifically Western society in the last several decades, a century, whatever you want to call it. And the Boy Who Cried Wolf fable, uh, I think is interesting because I think that the lesson that most people get out of it, and maybe it was the intention, is, well, that kid was a liar, right? Yeah. Uh, he's lying about the wolf and he keeps crying wolf. Everybody knows the story. He cries wolf three times. There's no wolf. He's doing it for attention to be seen as powerful and to be seen as a defender of the flock and all of that kind of stuff. And then the village stops believing him. They lose their faith in him. And eventually the third or fourth time the wolf comes and the wolf kills the boy and the townsfolk obviously, you know, understand that the boy was lying. But I think the, I think the lesson that I take out of that sort of parable is, is a little different. I feel like we don't focus on the wolf enough in that scenario. We focus on the boy was lying, which is an important, it's important to call out dishonest people, as most of us know in this movement. But I think the real shock in that story is that there was a wolf. And uh, I guess my own personal journey, which probably mirrors a lot of people's, I have a feeling might mirror yours, mm-hmm. is sort of uh, getting into this stuff through all different paths, getting into sort of the truth movement through all different different roads, and maybe starting on one angle, but you get pulled down these rabbit holes. And I've certainly come out of it all feeling that there certainly is such a thing as evil. Yeah. And no matter if you're talking about election fraud or, um, you know, money laundering or international corruption or the Biden family or the CCP, or I call it the darkest path, um, the Pizzagate stuff is how I got into this movement originally. Uh, when you go down those rabbit holes, I think you can only really come out of it understanding that there's something at the core that binds all of these different 
sort of uh, criminal organizations and acts and people together. And I think the only word we have for it is evil. I agree. So that piece was kind of metaphorical. I mean, it wasn't meant to be literal. And I, you know, I've got, it's not like I'm saying something nobody said before. It's, it's more just a reminder of remember, remember what we're after here. And remember that it's not about exposing people who are lying. It's not really about, there's all these little battles that we're in, but it's, it's about the wolf, right? It's about who is it that we're against? What are they doing? What are their goals? How do we expose them? How do we find them? And then if we do accomplish that, how do we move forward basically as a society after we do that? Um, I think that you got, you and I, uh, share a similar focus on the narrative about the narrative or the separate narratives that make up the grander narrative and what that narrative is designed to do. And, you know, I know that we both kind of, I I don't want to speak to your awakening process, but in terms of your political affiliations, you came to MAGA after Trump had been elected, right? Right. Same so I thing. right right okay. so I um if we go way back my my general background is um I was raised I shouldn't say I was raised liberal because my parents to their credit were not um politically motivated people you know uh, they weren't ideological people I should say mm-hmm. uh but they were blue collar I always say they were blue collar liberals yeah. so um growing um as a liberal or as a Democrat, um, do I still have you? Yeah, it dropped for just a second, but I think you're right. good. Are we good now? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I identified, you know, from the earliest time I felt like I could form political opinions or anything like that. I identified as a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first election I was able to vote in 2008, and I voted for Obama, which is crazy to say at this point. Mm-hmm. but. For a while, I started calling myself, it was almost like I got disillusioned with, I was originally disillusioned with the Republicans because of the Bush era. That was kind of when I was old enough to form opinions on what was going on. And I knew that that was bad, that everything they were doing was bad, right? Mm-hmm. So I figured, well, well, if this side is bad, then obviously the other side is good. So whoever's against that side publicly has to be the good guys. Yeah. So that was who I was on. And I distinctly remember, um, I don't remember the year, but I think it was 2011 or 12, Obama signed the National Defense Authorization Act. I think this was during Occupy Wall Street, that movement. And essentially what it did was it allowed um, federal agents to detain protesters, peaceful protesters, with no due cause, and they did not have to be brought before a magistrate or a judge. Uh, they could be incarcerated for as long as the officer decided. Um, and I couldn't reconcile something I think I've always been good about since I was a kid is that if it didn't make sense to me, it didn't make sense. It didn't matter if I was your friend or if mm-hmm. we did, you know, we were, oh, you're the good guy and you're telling me you're the good guy and I thought you were the good guy. If it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense. And I couldn't get it through my head. I couldn't understand why this quote unquote liberal president would have signed something like that when the people that were in this movement were supposedly 
the people that got him into office, basically. Uh, so, you know, fast forward from that, I mean, my first toes that I dipped into the conspiracy movement, so to speak, was all about 9-11. Mm-hmm. So I, I went deep into that whole rabbit hole. I'm still very firm in my opinions that it was an inside job, mm-hmm. you know, uh, basically by the Bush administration with a lot of help. Uh, and basically, I disengaged from politics for years after 2012. Um, I did not vote in the 2012 election because I knew Obama was bad, but I also knew Romney was too. So I thought, all right, we lost. That was basically my mentality. They, they won, we lost, everybody's an idiot, and there's nothing people like me can do about it. So I'm going to just join. I'm going to voluntarily join the matrix. I'm just going to. <laughs> I remember, I remember I came out of college and I went, I'm joining the matrix because <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. <laughs> I was going crazy, right? Like when you go into that stuff and you feel crazy and you feel like you're trying to people you trust, right? People you, you go, Hey man, I can talk to you, right? Like, listen, we both voted for Obama, but you could admit this is a little crazy, right? Or this doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Or sometimes Republicans and Democrats both do the same thing, right? And, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like you're talking to a wall, right? We've all experienced that, I'm sure. Well, so, they just know that they can get in trouble for, for giving the wrong answer. Right. But it's, uh, I always call it those cognitive dissonance walls. It's like you hit, you hit a wall. You can talk to somebody at a certain point. It's like you're digging through soft earth. And with some <laughs> people, you get, you get pretty far. Yeah. And then you hit a wall it, and the wall is different from ever for everybody. For some people, it's just you say something bad about a Republican and hey, Donald Trump's a Republican. So what are you doing saying something bad about a Republican? So I often say something that is not very popular among people uh, in the MAGA crowd or in some of the MAGA crowd is I often say uh, most Republicans will not admit that they were on the right side in 2016 purely by accident. Yeah. And I will go to my grave with that. So if anybody's going to follow me, you should know that I think most of you probably were following Donald Trump by accident, but many of you have probably come around now yeah. to understanding. I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people admit that and the the ones that don't who, you know, who voted for Trump maybe even twice, but are still like out there like waving the banner of Ron DeSantis and like trying to blame Trump for the vaccine and this stuff. Right. It's like, I don't think you're fully awake. Like I basically think you are ultra MAGA or Mm -hmm. still asleep somehow. Like there's no in between. Yeah. And you know what Donald Trump has withstood and what he's been through and what he's accomplished. And you think that there's another better option. I think you're nuts. Yeah. And it's interesting. So for me, Heading into the 2016 election, nothing, nothing in the inter, intervening time period had changed my stance of being like, well, none of this matters. Uh, they won. They, whatever the collective they is, won. I had sort of disengaged from all of it, and I was not going to vote. So uh, I didn't vote. Spoilers: I did not vote in 2016. I, I knew enough to know that Hillary Clinton was just about the worst person in the world. Um, Part of my whole rabbit hole I went in in college about Obama led me down the Clinton rabbit hole. And that blew my mind. That was probably the the Clintons in particular is probably as as an East Coast liberal, that's the stuff that really shattered my worldview of going, 
you know, I knew the Bushes were bad, but now I found out that the good guys yeah. are arguably worse. So yeah. I knew that the entire DNC machine was firmly behind the Clintons, which clued me into the fact that, that well, that means the entire DNC machine is compromised. Mm-hmm. The only guy I almost got roped into supporting of course. was Bernie, Yeah, which is not a shock to most people, right? Because the DNC screwed him over. Right. So I often say, um, you know, if I don't know who to follow or I don't know, maybe I don't know who the right person is, I try to look for who the guys I know are bad are attacking. <laughs> yeah. And at that, yeah, at that time, I went, well, the DNC is going harder against Bernie than they even are against Trump. So he was kind of my guy for a while. And I remember it was a cousin of mine who was also a liberal for most of his life. He told me one night, he goes, dude, you know, Trump's the guy, right? And at the time I was saying, I didn't think he was bad, so to speak. Uh, My opinion on him was that he's the apprentice guy. He's doing this for a grift, basically. Like, I didn't think he was in the club, but I didn't think he was going to be a great president. I didn't know anything about anything that was behind him or his background or anything. Uh, I was like, well, Bernie's, Bernie's probably the guy. The only reason I didn't even vote for Bernie is because I knew it didn't matter. So I knew that they weren't going to give it to him. And the funny thing is, though, like it's it's sort of fast forwards. But the funny thing is that the day that Trump won, despite not really caring or think not thinking I cared, I was really happy. I, I remember feeling like an overwhelming sense of that's right. F you. <laughs> F the establishment. Right. Like it. Everybody who was against this guy, the whole machine was against him and he won. And I had it in the back of my mind, which is why I'm huge on the whole idea of narratives and narrative seeding and these things that you think maybe you think you're not getting through to anybody, but maybe you are. I remember my cousin in the basement that day telling me Donald Trump's the guy. I know you don't think he is, but he's the guy. And I remember when he won. I went, okay, well, let me see. Maybe he is the guy. You know, the rest is history, obviously, the entire. Yeah, yeah I went through kind of the same thing myself in terms of the, the timing there. As soon as Trump got elected, I texted my friends who were Trump supporters who I had argued with to no end and said, yeah. hey, man, I didn't think that was possible. I was wrong. Congratulations. I hope he doesn't destroy the country. Right. And uh, it's. Turned out great. But in terms of those those little ideas, man, that was like one of the things I was really trying to accomplish throughout 2020 while I was still in Los Angeles is I wanted to make sure that all of these ideas were planted in people's heads so that when they came around to noticing them in reality, they would understand that someone actually told them this stuff, that it is possible to see ahead. And I'm I'm writing this thing now about. Um, an informational time machine, which is essentially what you're providing for someone when you tell them what's going to happen in the future. Future events are a matter of perspective and how they're viewed, right? Like for you back then, your cousin already knew what the future held to a very high degree of certainty, enough to say right. something like that confidently. Right. And you understood that he was saying it confidently from a position mm-hmm. of knowledge that you didn't have access to for a significant amount of time. But when it arose in your consciousness 
in the real world, in your empirical observable world, you recognized immediately what that was and what that event meant. And that is what the importance of speculative thinking is in this movement. And that's why it's so valuable. Um, so say some words about, uh, about narrative seeding, because I often talk about that as presetting a narrative. Um, but yes, I think that this is one of the most important things and it is one of the most significant weapons for the other side, which is why it's so important for us to recognize when it's happening and know what it means about the future that they're doing it. Right. And it's a, it's a huge topic. Um, but I genuinely think I I've said this before. I've said it recently. Um, I genuinely think that the right, the quote unquote right, or let's even call it the awakened right or whatever, you know, even a lot of anons. Um, I genuinely think that a lot of people do not put enough uh, importance or stock into narratives and stories. So yeah. basically people, an example of that might be, generally speaking, people in our movement dismiss everything that the mainstream media, whether that's CNN, MSNBC, uh, you know, they whatever they say is BS. And people who are maybe a little further along in the journey say Fox 2, right? That's when you know you got somebody sure. who's a little further along. They go Fox 2, they're bad too, right? Wrong. It, it, so the, the analogy I use is that if you're a general and you're fighting a war and one of your spies comes to you with a missive and says, I have the troop movements and supply chain information for the shogun that we're fighting in the next valley over. And you as the general says, well, that guy's full of shit. So I don't want to see it. Right? It's that would be an objectively poor decision to make. Yes. Right? Yeah. Even if you know that this guy's a liar and you're he's your enemy, right? You still want to know his plans. So a lot of people, including myself, write about fifth generation warfare, the whole idea that the modern modern war and I would go all the way back to I would go all the way back to Vietnam of uh, I mean, maybe even further. But in terms of what I've looked into, um, you can have hot war, quote unquote, and actual death and actual body counts and all that stuff and still be engaged in fifth generation war. The whole idea that the reason I think Vietnam was sort of the turning point is because it's the first war in American history where a majority of the population was actually against the war while the war was going on. So you think, well, how the hell did they get away with with doing it? How did they get a, how, how did they not pull everybody back mm -hmm. right when public sentiment changed? And I think it's all about the narrative war, right? The entire media war the political war, every narrative that people were fed was geared around keeping that conflict going. Yes. It obviously happened to us after 9-11. I think most people, including Republicans, understand that now. They understand that they were duped. I think that's why Trump, I think Trump gathered in a lot of Republicans who felt uh, betrayed mm -hmm. by maybe the Bush administration that they had kind of blindly supported essentially the next Vietnam. So narratives, when you're watching the news, I always say you're not watching the news, you're watching the battle plan, you're watching the narrative war. The stories that they're telling you on the news, whether they're real or true or false, is of less importance 
than what the intent behind the stories they're telling you is, right? Yep. So yep. if they're telling you a story about a mass shooting in a nightclub in Paris, it is literally less important whether or not that event happened than it is what their intention of telling you that that event happened is. Yep. That was a bad sentence, but you know, that's, I, know. Uh, I, get, yeah. I think that the reason, you know, everybody understands kind of anecdotally that we're all plugged in, we're on our cell phones, we're on the internet. Um, people don't have access to the truth. They don't have access to unfiltered, none of us, including through Trump or any of this sure. stuff or truth social or anything. None of us has access, direct access to what I call actual events. So one of the things I write about is actual events versus potential events. So actual events is what literally happened. Yep. So let's say a nightclub shooting happened. Okay. We don't know if it happened. All we know is that CNN told us it happened. And the details that we have from the event are coming from CNN. So in the modern age, I found it so difficult to parse what is actually occurring in the world that I decided to start focusing on who is telling me the story and what are they trying to convince me of with exactly. the story. Exactly. And you know, I think that that's more important to know than what actually happened. It absolutely is. And I've I've talked about this for a, a, an extended period of time on the podcast. I describe it in similar ways, but I say what the there's one true thing that you can learn from the mainstream media. You should assume that everything that they're telling you is at least in part a lie. The one true thing they will always tell you is what they want you to believe. And whatever it is that they want you to believe whatever thing is most important is whatever they will attach the most emotion to the most incentive to, and the most punishment for your disagreement. Yeah. I, I have an interesting anecdote about uh, this process and, and it playing out. So, you know, the narrative process. So my in-laws are, um, CNN is essentially hooked into their main line into their brain, right? Like 24 hours a day, they're CNN people. But they like me. We have a good relationship. They know that I don't agree with them. But I find that if I'm in their presence, their opinions will change. And it's not just about <laughs> yeah. it's not it's not as simple as uh, maybe they're censoring themselves, like maybe I'll censor myself. Uh, an example of this is I happen to be in their presence on January 6, 2021. Another Lucky funny you. anecdote. Yeah. Another funny anecdote on that day is uh, my best friend was in Washington, D.C. on that day. So I was on the phone with him while I had CNN on at my in-laws house. And if you want cognitive dissonance to assault you from either side, that's I couldn't have picked a better example. Please tell had, me you put the phone on speaker. Oh yeah. And what <laughs> I had was, so he was at the rally, whatever yeah. the rally was, um, the speech beforehand. And then he was at the the park or you know whatever they call it on the day, and his account of what was happening was so different from what from the images that I was seeing on the screen. But what was interesting wasn't my reaction because of course 
I already thought, you know, the, the, red, le the red and white letters on the screen, I, I wasn't going to trust them anyway. I knew they were playing the same back roll footage over and over and over of some guy smashing a window in or something. Right. But what was interesting is I just went to my mother-in-law, oh, you know, they keep talking about, they keep talking about that there's an insurrection, but I'm like, these people look fine. I mean, they, they, they're just, you know, they're just uh, shoving each other. And she thought the same thing. And my father-in-law too, she's like, yeah, they're being really dr dramatic about this, right? Like this, nothing really <laughs> seems to be happening. Nothing, yeah. what they're saying, they're talking about an insurrection, but all we're seeing is people walking around, even on the CNN feeds, it was just people walking around. So interestingly, interestingly though, like a week later, I saw them again. And it wasn't like any new footage had come out about that day. But the narrative in their mind, because they have CNN on every day, was, well, you've got to admit, that was really scary, what was happening. And <laughs> scary. You know, it really was scary after the fact for yep. an event they didn't attend. Isn't yep. that wild? Yep. Like and, to be scared of something them. that's not even real and you know right. it's not real and it already happened? And that kind of blew my mind because not because I knew I was surprised that the media was lying, but because I was there while they were watching it. And even yeah. CNN was showing B-roll footage of, you know, if you even watch, if you watch all of the CNN B-roll of that event, you can't see any crimes being committed, except for maybe the police themselves, right? Letting people into places they shouldn't let them into. But if you're just looking at the events, you can't see any crimes being committed. and yet. They're playing this non-criminal footage for a week, and just by talking over it with their narrative, yeah, they were able to convince all these people that actually what you're seeing is not a bunch of people milling around on the steps of the Capitol building. What you're actually seeing is an extremely bloody, death-filled insurrection. Yeah, man. Yeah. And, you know, they shot it to look like it was World War Z, man. They had right, people right. climbing up the walls. All of that was only happening on one side of the yeah. Capitol. And like and my buddy said, we're he on the other of, side. Yeah, it's he said he so, couldn't see any of this happening. I know it's 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 nuts. It is the most deranged tale ever. I had a friend whose wedding I was a groomsman in text me on that day and blame me for the very <laughs> violent insurrection. It's yep. comical how oh, nuts yeah. they made these people. And that is still the story that most of them are hanging on to, right. to, to continue the MAGA is dangerous narrative. These are all QAnon lunatics right. who are gonna come and have another insurrection. <laughs> the year yep. and a half plus since then, it's now been what, almost 19 months since that day and yeah. There has been no more insurrection. There has been no <laughs> political violence from the right. And they yep. still think it's eminent. They think that we're going to start a civil war. Right. And they are also the ones who want the civil war because they're Meanwhile, presenting that narrative you, too. You, right. And uh, so, you know, sometimes it's funny because this, this narrative war can be almost difficult to put into words, which I think is why I'm, I'm better at writing about it than I am about talking about it. But, uh, when you compare the events of that day to sort of six months previous in the, the summer of love, right? 
I think it's created uh, in a positive way. A lot of my writing is actually encouraging and uh, well, it's strange because I used to be very cynical. And Same thing, man. Yeah. And th- I think my writing is incredibly optimistic now. Right. I'm writing about the darkest subjects ever, but I, I'm very hopeful about all of it. Yeah, it's strange. I'll read I'll reread my own articles and go, oh, OK, well, that's pretty positive. You know, an article all about <laughs> death and the origins of evil. And I go, all right. Like sometimes I'm almost convincing myself. But, uh, you know, I'm not setting out. I always say I'm not setting out to encourage people. I'm setting out to tell you what I think. And right. it just so happens that these days I feel very encouraged. And one of the one of the reasons is, even though it sounds very negative, what we're talking about, about, um, you know, January 6th and how easily people can be programmed. I think one of the things that uh, that I've been really focusing on in a lot of my writing, I've had a few terms for it and different people have different terms for it. But one of them is narrative whiplash is something yeah. I've talked about. Another thing is sort of a psychological tension. And an example of this would be. If you look at that insurrection, and then you, and I mean the insurrection in the normie mind, in the unawakened CNN watching mind, they're absorbing what the TV is telling them. They're looking at images on the screen that are showing them, if we want to be fair to them, let's say that the worst stuff it's showing them is angry Trump supporters mm-hmm. who are who are at the Capitol to voice their displeasure for the establishment and to voice their support for Trump. Maybe some of them even broke a couple windows. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of them even did enter the Capitol without permission, right? That's mm-hmm. that's about the worst that you could say happened. Maybe back. some of them even got in physical alter- altercations right. with police officers. Right. Let's say let's say a police officer was assaulted, you know, something right. like that. Um, you know, you could you could reasonably allow yourself to say, okay, if I'm a person watching CNN and I look at this day. Maybe I could admit that it wasn't World War Three, but maybe I can say, well, this was a scary escalation because what comes after this? You know, if, if they don't get their way, what what could potentially come after this if they come back? But I would say that the normie mind has been inundated with a psychological tension going but that was seeded six months previous in the summer of love when you had some of the worst riots in the history of the United States, all by left-wing activists, right out in the open. Mm -hmm. You had people getting killed. You had businesses getting burned down. You had the famous mostly peaceful protests, right? You had all of this stuff going on. And to juxtapose that with the January 6th insurrection, I think a lot of times the way this narrative seeding stuff works is that it's unconscious. The 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 quote unquote fruits of narrative seeding don't always reveal themselves until quite a long time in the future. So you've got this juxtaposition now in the normie mind between mostly peaceful protests where Minneapolis was virtually burned down to the violent MAGA insurrection where two people died and later it was determined that it had nothing to do with, you know, the events of the day. At that time, they all were, you know, on the bandwagon of MAGA's bad and MAGA's violent. But I think that we are starting to see almost an exhaustion in the normie normie mind. And I think uh, we could see a lot of this in the Liz Cheney hearings Mm -hmm. before her recent defeat in the election. Normies were not engaging with that. 
the general population of the United States was not engaging with her narratives, where if she was putting that stuff out in February of 21, everyone would have been engaging with it. But nobody engaged with it a year later. And then the question is why? And I would say it's because deep down, they know that whether or not they like Trump or whether or not they like MAGA, that they were sold a story about the events of these days that didn't necessarily line up with reality. Yep. And, you know, that's that's I think that's happening a lot in the current administration. Well, yeah, they're being asked to accept these obviously false stories again and again and again. And there's a certain number of times that someone can accept doing that before they either break out of it or they just continue to double down. And those people are going to go crazy. But they're breaking a lot of people out of this just with the what they're being asked to believe at this point and what they're being asked to support. I mean, they tried to get way too much out of the January 6th narrative. It just couldn't last that long. There's not enough substance there. There's no payoff for the uh, emotional output they're asking people to expend in that event. You know, you you mentioned the uh, the summer of love. You know, they seized parts of Seattle. They were indiscriminately beating people. Yeah, they were looting and robbing stores all around the country, which continues to this day. Yeah, the. Criminals were processed and then immediately let back out onto the streets so they could riot more. They failed on the Kyle Rittenhouse story. They failed on the Breonna Taylor story. They failed on the Jacob Blake story over and over again. They spent over 100 straight nights attacking the federal courthouse in Portland. And so all of these people had to morally justify that in their conversations and in their narrative space throughout that entire summer and into the fall. Donald Trump had to tell his proud boys to stand back and stand by because the real problem was the political violence on the right. And this Antifa BLM response was was just like a (laughs) self-defense mechanism for black people. The rebel alliance. Again. Yeah. Against the political right. All of it was madness, but they all bought in and they all supported it and they all justified it because it was so important to get Trump out of office. Right. So they all have that collective guilt that kind of amasses over time. And January 6th was kind of their release valve for that. You know, you remember the uh, the Reebok pumps You used to pump them up and then you would press the little release button. It would make that satisfying (laughs) little hiss like that was that for them. And they wanted it to be real. They needed it to be real because it was the only way they could ever justify all the stuff that they had already like gotten the back of. So so talk about that for a second, because I feel like you have a a reaction that's going to be interesting to that. Well, it it sort of makes me think back to the the whole fable I've been writing about. I mean, the whole boy who cried wolf thing, because I think about multiple multiple audiences in that story. So not the audiences I'm writing to, but the audiences in the story. So if you're looking at, um, let's say, the events of January 6th, uh, let's call the media the boy. They're crying wolf, right? The wolf is at the door and the wolf's coming in to get us and the wolf is going to destroy our democracy. And that's what they always say. That's a whole other rabbit hole. But I often talk about how they're um, they're telling you the truth with lies. They're saying, yes, we're concerned with our democracy because they're trying to convince you that what we need to protect is a democracy when we don't fucking live in a democracy. Excuse my language. 
when we don't live in a democracy, we live in a constitutional republic, right? So yeah. they're constantly they're constantly trying to get you to defend a worldview that none of us agreed to in the first place. Yeah. So they're automatically casting you in the position of an ally when you never agreed to be an ally in the first place, right? So, but in the boy who cried wolf, yeah. you've got the the village people. I mean, you've got the boy, and he's lying at first. Then you've got the people in the village, and I would say that's what we'll call the normie. And then let's add a third group that's not in the fable, but that's us in the modern world. We're the people who know that the wolf is there. We know that there's wolves in the woods, but we know that that kid's a liar, right? So we're the ones who are sort of observing the events that are going on, and the village people rush up because the boy cried wolf, and then nothing's there. And then they rush up the next week, and there's nothing there. And then, you know, the third time, whichever time it is, they rush up and the boy, or they don't rush up and the boy dies, right? Well, that's an, that's a example of narrative seeding where if you had people in the village that said, there are wolves in those woods, but he's lying to you mm-hmm. about where they are and when they come out mm-hmm. and what they do when they do come out, right? So eventually, obviously, it's proven that there are wolves in the woods and one of them gets the boy. So the village people, who they're going to turn to is that third audience. And I think, you know, some of us have maybe fantasies about that happening. Like maybe we've we've had personal relationships kind of dissolve in the last several years. And maybe we've ventured a little bit, a little bit too boldly in terms of uh, what our opinions are with certain people in our circles. Right. I don't believe that's possible. Yeah, well, I don't either. But I mean, yeah. uh, you know, you lose relationships and all that. And I think that, some of us that is possible and acceptable. Okay. Yes. And I think that's the key there is accepting it and accepting yeah. that people are at different, different uh, points in their kind of journey. But I think that there's a sort of a cynicism in part of our movement where people think they almost can't imagine the unawakened mind right now. They can't imagine them awakening. They can't imagine those people that were watching the B-roll footage on CNN who think that MAGA people and Q people are trying to overthrow the government. They cannot imagine them coming to their senses. But the reason The Boy Who Cried Wolf is such a good example is that um, I always used to say about combat sports, every other sport is a metaphor for what combat sports is, right? So in combat sports, there's no question at the end of what's going on, right? There's no, let's play a game yeah. and let's figure out who's better. There's two men enter, one men leave, one man leaves, right? And obviously it's a modern version of that. But in The Boy Who Cried Wolf, there's no debating among the village people about what happened afterwards. There was a lot of debating in the first two or three times that they rushed up to the field and they saw that there was no wolf there, right? I think the easy reading of that fable is to say, well, they all thought he was a liar. There's no way that's true. We know how the human mind works, right? There were some that most of them believed in the first time. Maybe half of them believed in the second time. Maybe a third of them believed in the third time. But there were arguments in the village of, well, he's telling the truth, but the, the wolf was scared away, right? But the the time when they went up and they found that the wolf was there and the boy was dead everybody gets on the same page and retroactively they all understand 
that the wolf was always there, which is why I kind of end the piece with that sort of saying is that whether or not the wolf was attacking and the boy was telling the truth or lying the first several times, the end result of the story is that the wolf was real and the wolf was there and that the village wasn't prepared for it to be there. And I, I sort of think as a society, we're kind of heading toward that. We're still heading toward that. I don't think we've seen the wolf. I think some of us in this movement maybe have some ideas about what that is or uh, what's really going on behind the scenes. Why does the media lie to us? Why are there these, mm. why are there these narratives? But I think, you know, normies don't really know what's out there or what we're trying to warn them against until it's here. And uh, once it is, things might look a lot different. Have you seen the movie The Village, the M. Night Shyamalan movie? Yep. I just watched that movie again over the weekend because I was thinking about something along these lines um, last week. And, you know, I have various names for communists. And uh, <laughs> um, and I think that I'm going to start calling them um, villagers because yeah. – <laughs> if if you're familiar with the uh, if you're familiar with the 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 film The Village, I want to just describe it for the audience a bit. It opens on what looks to be a period piece about a small village in maybe the 1700s, um, a village of settlers, very religious people. They talk in an old timey way, and outside of that village is a forest and in that forest are some sort of creatures and they're basically at a standstill. They know that if they don't invade the forest and they don't try to go through the forest and then outside the walls of the village, then the monsters will basically leave them alone. And that is kind of just the deal that they operate under. And they don't want anyone to ever think about going outside the walls of the village. And spoiler alert, this movie was from 2004. So if this is a spoiler for you, that's not <laughs> my problem. But uh, eventually they have to travel outside the walls of the village. And you realize that they are just in this sheltered society that they have created on purpose as a way from as a way of escaping the real world. But the real world is a modern world outside the walls of that village, and they are just preserving this ideal of the past so that they can keep everybody in this certain mindset. The information within that community is completely controlled. They are told lies about what the society actually is because they fear that if they tell the truth, then the society that they know is going to fall apart and all these awful things, all these awful consequences of modern society are going to befall their family members and their friends, blah, blah, blah. That is kind of the situation that we are dealing with right now. We have this um, powerful establishment and, you know, I call them the global communist order. You have different names for them, but we're all talking about essentially the same thing and about it right. essentially leading the same place. But they're trying to keep us all within the walls of this village and not realize what's outside of that on at least an informational level, if not a societal level and a financial level and everything else, certainly a spiritual level as well. But we have all these people that we're, that we're dealing with who are still very much these villagers. You know, normies works just fine. But 
we're talking about this very small, very sheltered mindset that is just beginning to awaken to all these realities for the first time. And that's where you were. That's where I was. There's nothing wrong with having been there. There's probably something wrong with continuing to be there now <laughs> because a lot of people have been telling you consistently, people yeah. very close in your life have been telling you, hey, you're on the wrong path. And rather than embracing that and considering it, these people have rejected every attempt any of us have made to do that. I refuse to blame that on those of us who are actively trying to communicate the truth with goodwill and good intentions in doing that, knowing that we're not always going to be right. But that is what we are dealing with. That mindset is what we are dealing with. And I think in one thing that you got to in that article was talking about the symbology of evil and relating that to the idea of the Nazi, the abstract form of the Nazi. And that is actually a really important subject right now as these very same people, these villagers are supporting us in our funding of literal Nazis in Ukraine. Right. And, and by the way, you can dispute if you will, if you like the idea that these are literal Nazis in Ukraine, I think maybe you might, um, at least want to discuss the symbology at work there and maybe we're misreading that. But anyway. Right. And uh, I guess, uh, yeah, that kind of goes full circle into how I sort of got into this this movement. I mean, I was a lurker. I was uh, somebody who was, like I said, way back at 9-11 times, I was in the information war, but I was always passive. Then I disengaged completely. Then I dove in in 2017. I was following along with the Q posts basically at the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, I, I bought into that stuff very early, and one of the things I I, uh, I piss some people off with the stance, but I mean people that still think that it's doubtful are either retarded or <laughs> you know or just haven't read any of it, right? Like yeah, that's the really sad part is the, that they the, haven't the, even bothered considering it. The very beginning of the Q operation told us about the Saudi purge four days in advance of it happening, it, uh -huh. right away. It, it proved that it was it was at least whoever it was had some sort of inside information, right? To to say who they are and what their purposes were, there's plenty of room for debate there. Sure. But at least in terms of is this information that's worth following, that that checked out immediately. And if yeah. you don't know that, then you haven't done any research into it. I'm sorry, I don't know what to tell you. But with the the for some reason. I'm no, I'm by no means a Russian historian or anything like that, but the Russia-Ukraine narratives, and the, the before even the Ukraine narratives, the Russia narratives that were being bombarded and mainlined into the U.S. from 2016, from the point that Trump stepped foot in the Oval Office until the present day, just really got on my nerves. And even, what's interesting even before is, Trump stepped in, you would say, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. but. I'll admit that it wasn't getting on my nerves at that time got it, because got it. I just assumed, well, obviously Putin's bad. Sure, sure. The, Same. The yeah. TV told me that the Putin was bad, so he must be. So yeah. when Trump got in, obviously you have a bit of a realignment in the paradigm when that happens, if you kind of got on board, which I did. Uh, but the, the, the interesting thing was it created some, uh, I think we often use cognitive dissonance as a negative term. But interestingly, it can be a positive thing. Mm. So we all experience it, right? So an example for me is that when Trump got in, shortly after he got in, I was a 
a full a full-throated supporter whatever you want to say i was i was all about it he really never did anything to let me down and he was kind of uh, earning my support with each passing month the media was earning more and more of the scorn i already had for them mm-hmm. by the way they were attacking him right but then what started happening is i started to apply the same lens that i was applying to trump to everything else i tried to be kind of scientific about it which is what they would want you to be right science yeah. is new religion so i said okay well who is telling me that russia is bad all the same people that are telling me that trump is bad so now is there a scenario where they're completely wrong about the one and completely right about the other yeah and they're yes. constantly they're constantly conflating the two. And this is where I think people in our movement are mostly good about it. But I, I would implore people to engage with ideas that are innately uncomfortable for you because you can always get back. You can always step back, right? You can always crawl down a rabbit hole and then you can keep a lifeline and you can have somebody pull you back out of it in case it yeah. turns out that it doesn't work out, right? Yeah, or you but, could just find out you're wrong, which is totally yeah, okay. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So for me, I just started saying, you know what? You know, the funny thing about Putin, besides thinking that the people who are criticizing him were evil, I started thinking, this guy's funny, right? The more I started watching him, the more I started watching actual uh, speeches and addresses in front of Russian parliament, I was like, this guy is hilarious. And he's very similar to Trump mm-hmm. in, in the fact that he will just, he'll just say stuff. I was watching uh, interviews with him in 2015 when he was talking about, um, Hollywood being run by a bunch of Western pedophiles and how nobody <laughs> wants to call them out, right? And now that takes on a little bit of a different ring. Yeah. But at the time, it was ridiculous. What a ridiculous, absurd Russian thing to say. But now you look at it and you go, this guy has not given an F for the last 20 years and has been straight out there just calling out the most powerful psychopaths in the Western world right to their faces. Yeah. Saying, I know who you are. I know what you do. And we're not going to back down from you. So I think uh, there was a little bit of providence in when I started writing, where the first Righteous Russia piece I put out was in early January. And uh, that was about six weeks before the invasion. So I'm by no means the only person or the first person who suggested, you know, maybe Russia isn't all bad. But I sort of committed to that. And I said, they are, I was paying attention to the narratives and the stories that were being sold to us. And I was saying, they need a boogeyman because Trump's gone. Trump's out of the public spotlight at that time. They need a new boogeyman. And they started seeding Russia and Russia's moving and Russia's on the borders. And I said, they need, they need an enemy for Biden to be compared to. So that's when I started kind of looking into that stuff. I have a little bit different opinions of it now than at the time. But uh, I basically started looking and, you know, kind of going back to the boy who cried wolf analogy. I mean, right now, Russia's the wolf. But in Russia, ironically, many of us have learned that the Azov Battalion and a lot of these organizations and paramilitary groups that are in Ukraine that are ostensibly fighting the good fight against the big bad Russians are known nazi or nazi sympathizing or whatever you want to say battalions to the point where you've got vladimir Zelensky on on video interviews 
responding to basically legitimate journalists saying, well, what do you think about criticisms about the Azov battalion? And in one of his more famous quotes, he says, well, they are who they are. I mean, that's where we've got them right now. So it it sort of prompted me to go down these rabbit holes of Nazis. And I think that even people in our movement get a little bit too mystified by Nazis and the the sort of mysticism associated with that movement. I'm not, I'm not worried about that. I don't, I genuinely right now don't really care who yeah. Hitler was. I don't care about some of those theories. What I care about is why is the Nazi, why was the Nazi used at the time it was used? Why do they not want to talk about it now? Who's funding them? Right. And yeah. who are they trying to cast as the modern Nazi? And I would say right now it's the Russian. The Russian is who they're trying to cast. Well, certainly MAGA and Trump supporters as well, don't you think? I mean, they've they've run this scenario through a million times in the United States, and it went from racist to white supremacists to then white nationalists, which isn't even right. a coherent phrase. Like, there's no such thing as white nationalism. Does that mean that we want an all-white <laughs> America? Well, that yeah. would just be white supremacy. Like, I'm white and a nationalist, but I'm certainly not a white nationalist the way they talk about it. And then it became Nazi and then it became fascist and neo-Nazi. And they'll just use all these words interchangeably. None of the definitions actually fit the thing they're talking about. But the opposite actually is true. Like they have gone through systematically every one of the evils that the Nazis are accused or did perpetuate. Um, And there's no recognition there that they're doing that. And them actually supporting real Nazis in Ukraine is only the latest example of them doing stuff <laughs> that the Nazis did. And right. they're denying that they did it, which actually right. does make them Nazi deniers. Right. It is wild that it is a complete inversion into the false reality. Well, what's what's interesting, that kind of that kind of prompts my um one of my sort of unifying macro theories which is which is uh the whole idea of narrative whiplash it's it's not just uh uh, people toss around the boomerang term a lot and i do too and i think that it's a real thing right you know basically the way i would describe that is they they shoot a narrative out into the wind maybe it's about ukrainian corruption and it comes it comes all the way back and hits them in the face because it turns out they were involved yeah, and um, sometimes, sometimes in two days and sometimes five years. Right. And I would yeah. argue that recently we're seeing that these narratives, the, uh, the time it takes the boomerang to come back, is accelerating. Uh, it used to maybe take six to 12 months. Now we might literally be looking at two to three days, like you said. I think sometimes it's just hours. I mean, they tried right. an FBI shooter uh, event a couple of weeks ago, and that has been absolutely useless. I mean, they're you know, it's they they put it in a letter today to try to get Truth Social to increase their content moderation. But otherwise, they've they gave up on that that narrative in six hours. One other thing I want to say about the timing, though, that's interesting is that we can see that no matter how many boomerangs they have thrown out, it's not just the speed that they're increasing right now from boomerang toss to the inevitable connection with their own faces. It's that multiple boomerangs, like hundreds of boomerangs that they have tossed are all like going out to whatever extent they went out to. And they're all smashing them in the face at the same exact time, almost like it was planned. 
Oh yeah, and I, I I'm much more uh, in that camp than than yeah. some people are. Uh, you know, and I I just try to I, I have to be honest. I mean, I'm some people think it's silly, but I have a harder time believing that you know the bracketed they, the the big bad they is mm. this stupid mm. than I do believing that what we're watching is much more of either you know game theory that's already been won right or a liter a, a more literal movie that maybe some people are are comfortable kind of engaging with as an idea but that's yeah. one of the reasons i mean when you look at these boomerangs that are out there and you even take take aside some of the big ones and the nazis and all that stuff let's look at a couple recent ones so we would under we would have all agree probably that there's been kind of a culture war battle about gender identity right in mm -hmm. the last several years. So that's one of their boomerangs, right? They throw out um, bigots, whatever you want to say, whatever they call us. Whoever doesn't uh, doesn't believe that gender is a ideological phenomenon and thinks it's related to biology, right? They've got that boomerang in the air. The same month that they have women's marches. Yeah with hundreds of thousands of people protesting for the biological rights of biological females. You know, this is not the, this is not the, the plan of an in-control apparatus, Absolutely. is it at least what I'm comfortable saying. Some people disagree with me, yeah. and the disagreement would come in, they, they would say they want you to have psychological tension between contradictory ideas. I completely disagree with that because when you create psychological tension in somebody's mind, when you create a dichotomy, they are far less likely to engage with the source that provided that information to them. They're much more likely to disengage mm -hmm. with the source. So earlier you mentioned, you know, I use the word normie, which can be derogatory. And sometimes we use awakened versus unawakened. Whatever terms you want to use. I call them child-brained uh, communists, so I'm not right. really worried about offending them. But one of one of the things I think about is we often talk about this as a binary thing, right? We think about either people who are awakened or are in the process of awakening versus people who are sleeping or, you know, something like that. I actually think the reason that we are ultimately winning the narrative war is exactly what I just described. The cognitive dissonance that hits people, if it hits them hard enough, it's rare that somebody who gets hit with inherent contradictions in the narrative will immediately jump ship from their privately held beliefs or foundation or paradigm and jump into the opposite paradigm. That doesn't happen. It's very rare that somebody goes, for example, let's say hypothetically, Hillary Clinton was arrested tomorrow. And let's just say hypothetically, it was an open and shut case. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the country was in agreement that she should be in jail and she is corrupt and everything she's ever said was a lie. Even if that happens tomorrow, a very small number of Clinton voters will become Trump fans that day. Sure. Very small. Sure. Because her being bad does not make him good, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what happens that's still useful for us and it's still a win for us is that all of those people will disengage from the sources that told them all these things about Clinton, right? Mm -hmm. And ironically, in the war we're in, a disengaged mind 
is the same thing as the enemy losing active troops. Yeah. Right. The, mo the more people who disengage from the mind war, the better it is for our side, because once you disengage from a given side, you don't go back to it. You right. either stay disengaged or you find your way meandering over to the other side. And, you know, I think um, another example on the subject of sort of, you know, Nazis and all that, a huge narrative whiplash that I think I think is coming is to go back to the boy who cried wolf, the big shock of the village. And I, I think a sort of undertone of that story is guilt, not not of the boy, but something I've always felt about that fable is guilt. What if you're the villagers? Right. You'd feel guilty, even though he lied. That that boy was a villager, right? So he was trying to tell you and the third time or the fourth time, whatever it was, you didn't believe him. And he was telling you the truth. And then you went and there was a wolf. So even though you had been told a lie about wolves three times to the point where you disengaged from the idea of there being a wolf, once the wolf was revealed, the impact on you, I would argue, is much stronger than it would have been the first time. So I would say the same thing could happen with you know, Nazi reveals or anything that might be coming up in the next few years. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of how that would work in the paradigm we were talking about before with the uh, with the boy being the media. I think that we're, we should probably separate that idea from what right. you just said, right? Well, uh, I, I'll use a, a more recent example of what I think could be happening. So one article I haven't written yet because I don't really know how to approach it, but um, I have one in the works called The Men in White Coats. And it's basically all about um the sort of almost religious religious uh power we've attached to the medical industry in our mm -hmm. society right sure. and i would say fauci is an example of a man that since 2020 was thrust in front of the cameras as saint fauci i call him saint fauci right so he's the guy he's and we should all we should always remember who thrust him there exactly yeah. So I don't think that's an I don't think that's an accident. Yep. And an example of uh, of what I mean by these villagers and the response hitting them is let's say January of 2020 when the the rumors were coming out of Wuhan about yep. people dropping in the streets, right? Let's say by April it was somehow determined to be a Chinese psyop. Turns out it wasn't a big deal. This was BS. Um, there probably in that first quarter of the year in the U.S. would have been a certain number of maybe far lefties or scared people, whatever you want to call them, that would have been fear mongering about what's happening. Maybe there even would have been some media personalities or doctors doing the same thing. But if it's revealed that this was all BS, well, OK, it's not going to be a huge psychological event because there's been minimal psychological or real damage. So I always call it potential versus actual damage. Well, now fast forward to today. We had two years plus of lockdowns, job losses. Yeah. Two and a half, yep. Job losses of, I'm sure all of us know people if we haven't suffered it ourselves, of I job did. losses. Yeah, uh, I know I know a lot of people who did too. I was lucky in that, that way, but uh, now take all of that and let's just imagine a scenario where, again, in the Hillary Clinton example, something emphatic is released in the coming months or years that shows that these people 
Fauci, the CDC, whatever you want to say, uh, Pfizer, Moderna, they lied to you. They knew they were lying to you. And this is the damage they wrought on our society. If that comes out in 2023 or 2024, the whiplash, the psychological whiplash that that would have would be almost difficult to imagine. Right. There, well, there isn't a person that, that has not been affected by this stuff. Absolutely. Let me ask you this, though, because I think that the response that a lot of people would have is that that sort of information has already come out. It's not widely accepted. Right. What is the reason why it's not widely accepted? What is it going to take for that acceptance to come? Yeah, that's definitely the trickiest part of all this. Um, that's why, you know, when I engage in these hypotheticals, I say um, uh, I'm probably being too optimistic. Mm -hmm. But there's a scenario where I could see either through more overt control that I'll say, like uh, deals, whatever you, you know, some of that stuff gets a little squirrely, or um, people reading the tea leaves. Maybe that's the media industrial complex reading the tea leaves. Um, you know, the crabs in a bucket analogy, where once things start turning against these people, they have no problem throwing each other under the bus. Uh, it would not surprise me if most of us believe that, quote unquote, white hats, people that we support, people that we follow, they know all this stuff, right? Sure. They probably have significantly more documented evidence yeah. of crimes that we believe have gone on than we have. So to your point, one of the questions becomes, well, why haven't they released any of this stuff? Yeah, my, well, my, but part of it is, I think that there's, to me, there's overwhelming evidence of that the same way there's overwhelming evidence of election fraud. Right. You know, it's a matter of people looking or not looking. But anyway, exactly. I, but, uh, I think that, that that just shows, that just goes to show that it all depends on the source, right? So it depends on pe people, unfortunately, um, they care, most people care much less about the information on its own merits, and they care about the source that's giving that information to them. That's why I think that you need some sort of, um, you need a disclosure, like a legal disclosure from a legal apparatus in order to get any kind of awakening to occur. So a hypothetical example might be um, a class action lawsuit a big class action lawsuit, let's say a class action lawsuit with tens of thousands of Americans hits Pfizer and they win. Mm -hmm. Well, that in, it, in and of itself, if we just take that event, doesn't necessarily mean that they were lying about everything. But imagine that all that takes is one judge, right, to do that, which I think will happen. Probably and, two years. Yeah. But if that happens, that's already seeded the narrative in there of, sure. you know, just, just a year before, it will have been unthinkable that these companies were lying about what was in their vaccines or about the, the reasons for it or the emergency use authorization or anything like that. All it takes is a lawsuit to go public and say, okay, well, that was true. Turns out that was true. And then sets precedent. A lot of us in this community talk about precedents that can be rolled into future cases. But a bigger, a bigger example of that is the reason that in a lot of my writing, I focus on specific people. Maybe it's somebody like Trump or somebody like Fauci, because I think these people become symbols for good or for good yeah. or bad. Right? Yeah, yeah. And we're talking about a war of narratives and a war of stories. 
well, if you have, I don't know what the apparatus would be or the way this would happen, but if you have these people and these symbols taken down in certain ways or exposed in certain ways, that goes a long way toward seeding people's minds, I think. So even if you take Pfizer out of the equation, if somebody like Fauci, to, to Ron Paul's continued insistence, let's say Ron Paul actually does have some bite after the midterms and Fauci does go on trial, that would be a massive, massive psychological event, I think, just because he is associated with essentially the truth teller of the last two and a half or three years at that point. So I think that a lot of this, you know, the way we kind of push back or reverse the narrative war is, is essentially using it against them. Okay, yes. what were the figures that you just you said earlier? Do we think it's a coincidence that Trump put a guy like that front and center? Oh. I mean, why do we think he did that if we don't think there's going to be blowback or if we don't think that there's a reason he wants this name and this face in everybody's minds? I think he wanted everyone to fully know who Anthony Fauci is, and he knew that the community would get to the absolute bottom. I wish everybody would read The Real Anthony Fauci by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. because it's an, uh, just a, an astounding book, an right. incredibly well-sourced and total takedown of Anthony Fauci, who is an actual demon and yeah. married to a biomedical ethicist for the government. Like they yeah. are just hand in hand running what is by any reasonable comparison, a Nazi level program of medical experimentation. It's right. unbelievable what they're doing. And I think that that will be um, incredible. I think you're right that that is a psychological event. And Anthony Fauci as a symbol is even more powerful than Anthony Fauci as an individual. I think there are a lot of characters like that at this point in the story who could be treated similarly and have similar effects. Certainly anything with Bill Gates would Oh, serve right. that purpose. Um, but let's talk about this and then we can, you know, work toward wrapping this up because we're about an hour and 10. And we can come back and talk about some more of this. But in thinking about in thinking about the evil and thinking about, you know, I believe that the awakening only happens in one direction. There are very, very few psychological events that could ever stop the awakening, right? I don't really think that there's any that will stop the awakening, but there could potentially be events so incredibly disruptive that they might allow the global communists to regain some sort of hold on societies and the societal mind, the collective mind, especially if they're able to cut off certain means of communication or means of, you know, community interaction or whatever. That's obviously what they tried to do with COVID and what they've tried to do with the censorship. But have you given thought to the kinds of psychological events that could potentially reverse that trend if there are any? In a positive way, you mean? No, 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 in a negative or, way or a negative for way. their benefit. Yeah, because, you know, I think that we would both um, believe in one way or another, maybe with or without the slogan that nothing can stop what is coming. Um, I truly believe that and have since the beginning that this is all inevitable. The awakening is happening. Right. Too many people know the truth at this point. There is no stopping it. But you know, if there the, were to be, there would be significant psychological events on a scale larger than the one you just described with Anthony Fauci. It's funny. I uh, My short answer is no. But 
it's interesting. I actually think the time for massive, you know, let's call them false flags or anything mm -hmm. like that is past. And I'm not even I talking agree. about, uh, I'm not even necessarily talking about, I think white hats are in control and I think they sure. can't get anything done. What I mean is I think that they would not have the effect anymore. So another example of the boy who cried wolf, or if you want to, you, you know, that's a, that's a bit of a tired example, but if you want to take, um, I've got a German shepherd. Um, he's, he's very, uh, he was very difficult to train. He's the most loyal, loyal dog you'll have, right? He's a working line and everything, but they tell you when you're training a dog like that, you need to be, uh, you need to be the alpha, but if you traumatize the dog, you're going to create exactly what you're trying to avoid. Right? So I think that is what they have done with the American population. Mm. So I have a, a bit of a strange maybe reading on Operation Warp Speed. Um, I am firmly of the belief that Operation Warp Speed has nothing to do with vaccine development. I am firmly of the opinion that Operation Warp Speed was a counter, I call it a counter Hegelian dialectic, but if you wanna be you know, more reductionist, it was a counter psyop. Mm -hmm. Essentially, the idea, the key word is accelerationism. So I believe that Trump and whoever's behind him put them in a position where they had to expend all of their narrative ammunition in an extremely condensed timeline. Yes. The problem with this is that in the German Shepherd example, if your German Shepherd nips at somebody and you discipline him right then and there, and then you stop, you've taught a lesson, right? If you discipline him then, and then you discipline him three hours later, and then three hours later, and then three hours later, and then three hours later, he's going to bite you the next day because you have created such psychological tension within the subject that they don't even know what they're reacting to anymore. Mm -hmm. So right now, coming on the heels of COVID, coming on the heels of two years of lockdowns, people's lives being destroyed, all this stuff, right? Uh, the Russian invasion that they're telling us is World War III, tensions with Taiwan and China, whatever they're trying to do. Nobody cares. And I mean yeah. normies. Yeah. Normies. I, I was just in L.A. last week for the first time since I left a year and a half ago. And I would talk as I always talk because I don't speak differently around different people. And I'm not afraid of what people's reactions are going to be, no matter what they have done. Like there are committed vaxies who are completely red pilled and awake at this point. And I'm going to assume that everybody is an adult and we can have adult conversations. Right. None of them were even trying to defend any of it anymore. Yep. All the wind is out of those sails. Right. And that's a key that I, when I talk about uh, disengaged troops are still a net win yep. for one side of the mind war. We, we should stop. We should stop fantasizing in my opinion about everybody joining hands in a circle and mm -hmm. singing about the return of the MAGA king. That's not <laughs> what it's about, right? It's about if, if they stop fighting us, yeah. then we're winning, right? Right. And ultimately, when I say winning, it's not to beat them, it's to help them. It's so they get out of our way so that yeah. we can help this country get back to where, it up, where, it, where it's supposed to be. But my point about this tension, this psychological tension, is COVID was a huge thing. But when you look at Ukraine and everything, the the thing hanging over all of it in the normie hive mind right now 
that is cliche to talk about, but not enough people do in the conspiracy world is the economy, right? Guess who doesn't care what Putin is doing in Ukraine, even if he is the second coming of Hitler? Joe Schmo, Joe Sixpack, as the media likes to say, who's filling up his F-150 to right. go to the job site. Yeah. He doesn't care what's happening in Ukraine. What he cares about is that it now costs him $150 to get to work, when two years ago it cost him 60 bucks. That's what he cares about. He cares about his energy bills. Europe is about to get, talk about narrative whiplash. I mean, unless something changes, unfortunately, if somebody's gonna get a rude awakening, you wanna, actually, this might be a good example. You wanna talk about an event, like a, an actual negative event that I think will ultimately have positive ramifications, the European energy crisis. Get used to hearing that term. Oh, yeah. Because in the coming months, uh, people here don't quite understand yet unless they've been paying attention. Imagine your electricity bill going from $200 in July to $1,800. That's what's about to happen over there when they're trying to heat their homes. So there are events that will still be happening, I think, in a negative way. But I ultimately, you, you've talked about it as being a one-way sort of thing. I often talk about the truth is a one-way coffee filter, right? Once you once you've once you pour the hot water on the grounds, nothing's coming back up through that coffee filter. So I don't really see them having any cards left to play. Any cards they have left to play that are quote unquote traumatic or negative, all it's gonna do, in my opinion, is disengage people. I I even think that the Mar-a-Lago raid was an almost immediate backfire. Sure. You know? People have a lot of different views on that, and I've even written contradictory views on it myself. But that narrative fell apart in 48 hours. Yeah, and it and, continues to boomerang in their face like that. They threw out right. 20 boomerangs. They thought yeah. they were throwing out one. It split into 20 pieces, and now it just keeps crashing into them. Right. And I think it's less about it was botched or it was sloppy or there was contradictions. There's always been contradictions. You said yourself. There's always been contradictions in the vaccine deployment. There's mm -hmm. been contradictions in 9-11. There's been contradictions in Vietnam, JFK, whatever you want to talk about. There's contradictions in all this stuff, right? We can't pretend that that's the reason these boomerangs are happening. I don't think that's the reason these boomerangs right. are happening recently. I think it's, I call it crisis fatigue. It's narrative exhaustion, whatever you want to call it. People don't care. Everybody who wanted Trump in chains, they know that this is even the ones who want him in chains. They know that this is just the latest in a long line of boy who cried wolf scenarios, and he's not going to end up in chains, and nothing's going to happen to him, and they can't afford their rent, and they can't afford their heating bills. So that's, you know, they're disengaging, and some of them maybe are coming over to our side and looking at him differently. But I personally think that the awakening that a lot of us talk about, about sort of the normie awakening, I think that stuff comes later. I think that. You know, we or our side gets back into power, maybe starting this November and maybe ramping toward 24. And the awakening is uh, once our side is back in power and things start getting better, hindsight's 2020, right? Mm -hmm. People, people, people will be able to once the tension, once the psychological tension is removed from their minds, they might be able to look back and go, oh, maybe I was wrong. Maybe the people that I was supporting, things weren't going so well. And then these people got back in and things were going well again, right? So, you know, again, long, long way of answering that. But 
I don't see, you know, a false flag. I don't see any kind of deployment having a net benefit for them. All it would do was create more psychological tension that would make the state of the the psychological state of the country more upset heading into yeah, the midterms. I definitely I definitely agree with that, but then there's always the looming threat of a real or manufactured actual physical disaster on par with 9/11 or um some sort of you know, natural disaster or actual use of state violence to the point where they begin trying to round up citizens. Now, I don't think that's possible in America with right. 300 million guns. And is that the dog? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, with 300 million guns, I don't see that as a, uh, a likely outcome, but it could happen in other parts of the world. And barring the use of state violence, I don't see anything they can do. I don't think that they can actually use state violence because I think that ultimately they need a certain number of people in the world to actually go along with them willingly. Right. As much as they talk about being in or close to their end game in terms of the, you know, the technocracy or the transhumanist movement, they're not actually there. And most of that is science fiction and folklore and mythology on their part, which is amazing for how much they call other people conspiracy theorists. Right. They think they're just going to upload their brain yeah. to the cloud and live forever CPUs. in five years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The the, they're the, just going to perfect that. The yeah. guys that NVIDIA is going to come out with a new consciousness like. chip. Right, exactly. Yeah. So you don't see any possibility of, of well, those kinds of events. Well, if I want to be more, uh, maybe give a more firm kind of, logic-based answer rather than just how I feel about it. Um, right. But the feeling about it is that I don't think it would have a net benefit for them. But to right. your point, if you, let's just say, uh, let's say that they know that uh, it's not going to have a psychological benefit, but they're just intent on mass chaos, right? Because mm -hmm. chaos is, can't be bad for them. It can only be, it can be better. Yeah, civil war, I think, would be the biggest possible win for them, especially right. if they were able to call in um, a UN peacekeeping force or uh, militaries of other countries to help bring peace back to the United States, right? Restore our can, democracy. You can easily look at that scenario as another escalation or acceleration of a narrative whiplash, right? I agree. If people yeah. like us have been talking about the UN is out to get us and you, you got your quote unquote normies sitting there going, you're, you're crazy, you're, right. you're nuts. Right. And then the Biden administration calls in U.N. peacekeeping paramilitary forces to the U.S. to start making U.S. arrests. Um, first of all, uh, I was a, uh, I think we said at the beginning of this podcast, I used to be a liberal. Um, so I was not like a gun guy until mm -hmm. recent years. But if you if you ever want to feel good about sort of the prospect that that will never happen, you start looking into some statistics about how many people are Second Amendment believers around the United States yeah. and exactly how many legal, you know, whatever. We don't have to get into that. But sure. it, let's just say that uh, mm. it would not be practical to invade the United States in any sort of hot scenario by yeah. anybody. Uh, but even besides that, if I want to take a, a more practical approach, I think this is where John uh, or Patel Patriots devolution research really helps us as sort of a bedrock foundation that a lot of the rabbit holes I end up going down, I do the same thing you do where I look at, well, what could be the potential whiplash against us? 
I mean, against, mm-hmm. against the good guys, what could be counters to these sorts of things? And to me, everything comes back and it hits that bedrock foundation of devolution where I go, okay, let's just say in, in early August, it seems like it's been a year, but early August, the Pelosi trip to Taiwan, some of us th- felt like, hey, maybe this is the scare event. Maybe they're about to, maybe there's about to be some nukes airborne. Yeah. Maybe, well, we don't know what the plan was there, right? On either sure. side. But it could have, what if that was the plan? Well, why didn't it happen? Yeah. And they've tried to force it two more times. They've had two more trips that they've sent over there to try to, I don't know, why create is, conflict. Why is nothing happening? Right. Yeah. Why is nothing <clears throat> happening? Why have, why has none of these European nations who are all up in arms about Putin, why has not a single European troop stepped foot in Ukraine? Not yeah. a single one. Why has not a single American troop stepped foot over there? Why is all the combat footage we're getting literal video game cinematics? I mean, <laughs> you know, these are the yeah. things where people might look at people like me and say, oh, you're silly thinking that uh, everything's in control. I'm not being naive to say everything's in control, as in every single thing Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden says is what we want them to say. What right. I'm saying is they've been cut off, I think, from power. And yeah. if you want a literal definition of what is power, power in the United States is not the role of president, it's the role of commander in chief. And no matter if people think that devolution is 100% active or partially active or there's continuity of government, whatever the case may be, I am of the firm belief based on what we've seen in the last two years that I call them the powers that would be, do not have access to the codes, they do not have access to the upper levels of the military. They don't seem to even know what the U.S. military is doing on most days. Yeah. And, you know, if you wanted to action something like you're talking about, like a, a potential hypothetical of a devil's advocate of they're going to mobilize the U.N. against who? Against what? Against the combined might of the U.S. military? You think the U.S. military, Joe Biden's going to say, you know what, boys, stand this one down. All three million of you. Just stand, well, stand down and yeah, I mean, the idea would be obviously that Joe Biden is on that side and that he does have full control of the U.S. military and they will all respect the chain of and command. Yeah. And that goes up to Joe Biden and he would turn the U.S. military against the citizens of America in league with foreign forces. Right. right. Yeah. So I would say my two. That sounds like a conspiracy that. theory to me, too. Yeah, that's kind of funny. That's sort of what I've, I've come to at this point where I say it it takes more leaps in logic now to, to assume that that's possible yeah. than to assume that it isn't. And even if I say, let's let's give them another benefit of the doubt, let's say that he is the commander in chief. OK, do you have any family members or friends who are in the military? You know, do you know anybody who is? Because I have a bunch and I'm I'm an East Coast Northeast liberal or was. Uh, do I think that they're going to stand in their their hometowns with rifles and point yeah. them at their neighbors? I mean, who are the guys around the fire pit? in the summer talking about this stuff you know that that's sort of if you want to just boil it all the way down and get into let's look at the worst case scenario who's holding the guns who's holding the guns is it joe no even if he is the commander-in-chief who's given the orders and who's holding the guns and you know we saw some of this in the arab spring years ago even though that was partially a psyop that uh Egyptian people marched right into their streets and the military had tanks rolling down those highways and then they stopped and they turned around. Right. Why? Because that's their that's their people. 
So, what about, you know, are you, are you concerned about um, the Mexican cartels and the cartel war at the border spilling into America? Because, you know, we're talking about cartels that are in league with the global communist order and are basically just business partners in the slave trade that's happening at the border right now, being right. fully funded and supported by the fake administration. Yeah, I think that I mean, that's a whole rabbit hole. I think the cartels sure. are a, a big part of all this. I think um, I think, you know, most of us that have kind of gone down what I'll call the dark paths are, are aware of exactly how much trafficking goes on and exactly what kinds of trafficking goes on mm-hmm. and how much money's in it. I think most of that does come through the southern border. Um, for some reason, I don't know if it's intuitive or or if it's logic or whatever. I uh, I find the sort of doom mongering about the border, you know, the surges at the border and how many millions of migrants are coming in. It it, it strikes me as uh, strange and sensationalist. It it almost strikes me as um, if this was a huge deal, it already would be having massive consequences that we'd be seeing. Part of me sees it as a psyop, you know, maybe uh, maybe on our side of saying, get pissed, get pissed about the border, right? They're letting everybody in. Uh, all we see is the same type of thing where all we see is B-roll of caravans coming to the border. We don't really have a lot of, it's, it's what I talk about narrative versus potential events. I, I don't know how many of these people are coming in, how many of them right. are cartels, but I will say that if there is to be any sort of uh, quote unquote hot sort of, um, factions or uh, uh, blooms or anything in the coming years or or even months, I do think it would probably come from those kind of outfits, cartels, yeah. uh, organized crime. I mean, they're basically the same thing. Yeah. But when I look back at some of the old drops that talk about Antifa mapping, um, I think that goes a lot farther than Antifa, right? Sure. I mean, most, so I, I would... And the work that they did against MS-13 during the Trump administration. And as many in this movement, I would, I'm certainly not not one of the, the biggest minds going into this stuff, but as many people have talked about uh, some of the continued exposure of even U.S. intel agencies, there there's probably a lot more going on there, right? We just saw sure. a guy a few days ago get perp-walked out of the FBI building. So I'm not sure he got perp-walked, but right, yeah. Right, he got removed from he put out a he put out a statement today that said um he had planned to retire and announced it to the bureau a month ago and that yeah and that he walked out like with his friend right so we'll see what that story is but yeah uh i would just i would either way i think he's a target for durham at this point i think patel has um uh patel patriot has done a big article on this in part of his devolution series but i think the mo- i think he's even said this himself that but my favorite piece he ever did was a deep dive into uh christopher c miller ezra cohen watnick mm-hmm. these are names that some of us i didn't know about christopher c miller i did know about ezra uh, a lot of us did you know years ago some of these guys the most encouraging thing even if you take the devolution lens off the most encouraging thing about some of these appointments is the expertise that these guys had when it comes to warfare, right? And when you're looking at Christopher C. Miller or Ezra Cohen Watnick, Watnick is basically one of the world's foremost experts in um, terrorist cell mapping. Mm-hmm. So that's that's his thing. So is Christopher C. Miller. So if you want to say Watnick was the brains behind a lot of those ops, 
Miller was the muscle behind a lot of those ops. Well, why are those guys in in the positions or were in the positions for a few days, right? Just for a few days that they were in. So, um, you know, I I think it's good to keep in mind these potential threats. I'm not trying to be complacent or say, yeah, or minimize or say, no, we got it all. Don't worry about it. We got it taken care of. I just mean um, I expected a lot more to happen in June after some of the Supreme Court decisions, didn't you? And yeah, I definitely, yeah. I thought it was a little weird that we didn't have a lot of that. Now, that could be because uh, people have been, you know, scooped up and rounded up that we don't know about, if that's, a, you want to be optimistic about it. It could just be that people have read the tea leaves that might have been involved in these things and go, you know what, this is not a good time to to yeah. go hot, so to speak. And I also just don't think the Dobbs decision has nearly the impact that the media is pretending it does. If right. people were actually angry about that, they would have been out there. If people thought there was something they could do about it, they would have been out there. Exactly. But they weren't out there. And they right. warned, you know, they put out the, uh, the, the draft decision well before, and there was some reaction to that. And then a couple of months later, the decision finally came out, and the reaction was minimal. The right. idea that they're going to go out and win an election on this issue is insane to me. I don't know why anyone on our side is believing it. I kind of talked about that in an episode today. Right. But yeah, man, I, I I don't know what they could possibly have left that would work. You know, yeah. they basically only have, like a boomerang is their only weapon now. And they already yeah. know how it ends up. And I think uh, one of the things that's most encouraging, again, it might seem, oddly, it might seem... Um, I think it's because it's not a sexy topic when you talk about the economy and the Federal Reserve and things like that. I mean, people, most people in this community understand Federal Reserve equals bad, right? But maybe they haven't kind of looked into this stuff. And it's like, it's it's really ground zero for everything. You know, right. if, if you want to talk, whatever you whatever your thoughts are in this sort of community, you believe on some level that we're watching a war between, uh, you know, people who have our best interests at heart and people who don't, right? But we think that the the thing that binds the people who don't have our best interests in mind is some sort of leverage. I mean, it's not just that they all share an ideology. Mm -hmm. I think that it's some form of leverage. It goes all the way back to central banking and all this stuff. And one of the most encouraging signs that I've seen lately that I was predicting several months ago is keep an eye on the news, the mainstream media news, as disgusting as it is to watch. Keep an eye on the stories they're telling in the coming months, particularly the next two months, and look out for known deep state politicians to start throwing the Federal Reserve under the bus. To Mm. me, they're already starting, and I was predicting this in the summer, and to me, it's one of the biggest signs that they've lost some form of control. Because while I do, I often say in some of my articles, there is a great reset. It's just not the one that they had in mind. Right. So they were supposed to have a cover story for this monetary reset. The cover story was supposed to be a much longer period of lockdowns, Sure. a much longer period. And a lot of people will agree partially with my Operation Warp Speed take that they at least relate that to you know, the lockdowns. And they think that maybe they kind of expended all their fear ammunition at that time. But when you look at it now, well, what reason do we have right now for the Federal Reserve to be tanking the economy? I mean, isn't everything opened up again? Isn't yeah. it, sh- shouldn't everything be back back to the way it was? Yeah, so they're, they're using the Ukraine war and, you know, obviously they want more wars or there's no chance of them 
right. getting this. But yeah, continue. Yeah, so I just think uh, it, it's bizarrely, it seems disconnected, but you know, whether you're talking about paramilitary groups or any kind of, of actions, of uh, deployments, whether that's a narrative deployment or whether that's an actual deployment, such as a false flag, um, any kind of hot deployment, or even getting us embroiled in some sort of conflict, you need two things. You need money and you need the mandate of the U.S. military. Devolution to me takes care of the second point. I do not believe that they have the mandate of the U.S. military. I think if they did, they would have taken the opportunity to respond to the Kabul withdrawal at the time. That was their opportunity. That was the opportunity to say they attacked us on the way out, right? You know, most of us agree that they'd won. Why did they pull us out? Right. So you consider that a you you would consider that a devolution proof then? Because you know, a lot I think a lot of people listening will be like, okay, well, I understand devolution to some extent. A lot of people just think it's like, oh, the military ultimately has our back. Well, yeah, kinda. But that's not that's not really like a full understanding of it. There are people who have a pretty significant understanding of it who just don't think that it's possible that there's no way that Trump could have put this situation into place. And there's no reason to believe that Biden doesn't have control of the military. Look at how we're pushing wokeness into the military and that whole line, which I'm sure. Well, again, the wokeness uh, in the military thing is actually a a good example of something that I think is mostly narrative. So I I think that, uh, you know, I, I just use an anecdote of who are the guys that are sitting around the fire pit in the summer talking about the stuff we're talking about? Are those guys likely to be anti-military? Are they likely to be in the military, right? Uh, just the mind, the mindset that we're talking about. Um, I also think that uh, one of the reasons that I attached, the original reason I attached to um, Just Human, Kyle Just Human, was all of his commentary a year ago on uh, Afghanistan and Kabul and talking about the Doha agreement. But to me, in a roundabout way, Kabul is a devolution proof because, again, I cannot imagine that they would think that was a good move, right? right? Like for them, for their own optics. Joe Biden, everyone at this point knows that the Biden administration's polling is underwater, to use the industry terms, way underwater. I mean, it's around 30%, right? If you take their numbers, you know, the first month that it went underwater, August of 2021, yeah. and it never went above water again. Mm-hmm. So. I often, this is why I take such a macro view of events, and I try not to make specific predictions of exactly what I think was going on in Kabul. Did, you know, did those soldiers die? Who killed those soldiers? What, Mm -hmm. you know, what side was pulling the strings there? I don't know. I can't pretend to know those things. What I can do is zoom out and say, who did the Afghanistan withdrawal benefit on a long enough timeline? It did not benefit the Biden administration. It's the thing that tanked their polling, right? So why would they have done it? It did not benefit the military industrial complex because they lost a cash cow over mm-hmm. there. Uh, and they lost $80 billion worth of actual military equipment. And they it, lost the opium trade. Yep. Ironically, if you even, this is controversial to say, given that soldiers died, it benefited the U.S. military because there's no soldiers over there right now. Right. So if there were soldiers over there for the last 12 months, would more of them have died or fewer of them have died? Right. Yeah, I guess that's up for debate. But right. Uh, 
Because they weren't getting killed. They weren't getting killed under Trump. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, I know people who were deployed at that time, too, and they certainly said things were changing uh, when he came in. But the biggest the biggest proof to me, it, it seems strange to call it a devolution proof, but the Doha agreement was all about an agreement with the Taliban. And then, you know, you're going to tell me that I think most of us in this community are pretty good about um, looking at coincidences and when things make sense and don't make sense. You're going to tell me that it's a coincidence that the very people that Donald Trump signed the Doha agreement with ended up with $80 billion worth of U.S. military equipment after the Kabul withdrawal and started systematically hunting down and destroying the remnants of ISIS when we left which if you pay attention to the news cycle right. over there is still going on mm-hmm. every month. Right. So you're going to tell me like, and, uh, you know, not you, the general, you, you're going to tell me that, uh, oh, this was totally their plan. Yeah. They wanted to, they wanted to pull us out of there and, uh, you know, leave that money train goodbye, give $80 billion worth of equipment to the Taliban who are fighting ISIS, wiping them out. And, you know, another sort of proof to me is, it's not even the news cycle anymore. At the time, when we were withdrawing from Kabul, it was going to be the next big terrorist thing, and we were going to have to go back in, and what's going to happen to all these women in Kabul, and let's see all the pictures that are going to start coming out of Afghanistan in the ensuing months and years. Where's that? What, why is it not in the news? They need to spin up a new narrative. So you know, some of these things I just look at and I, I say devolution. Sometimes to me, the biggest devolution proofs are not necessarily what the military is doing. It's what the military isn't doing. And uh, I'm not I'm not going to pretend that I don't think that devolution implies that Donald Trump has 100 percent control over everything that's going on in the military. But I do think that there could be, you know, more uh, covert forms of devolution. There could be loyalists and disloyalists. There could be orders coming down the chain that get confused, or maybe they get implemented right. in botched ways. And uh, that can probably be happening on both sides. But I haven't seen anything in the last two years to suggest that the current occupiers have full, streamlined control over everything the US military is doing. Because I think if they did, we'd be seeing. We'd be seeing something different. They don't seem to have control over a lot. I don't even, I'm not even sure they get actual real intelligence. I think that they might be getting their intel from the media. (laughs) Right, right. Well, one of the, Uh, one of the biggest uh, white pills for me of the whole Mar-a-Lago raid was one of the early pieces I wrote about it before, you know, none of us really knows what the intent was there, but half of the media was attacking the FBI and half of them were attacking Trump. When I say media, I mean establishment media. Right. I mean, you, you had people like the Cuomo brothers saying, we need to know who ordered this raid because if there wasn't anything here, right, which goes to your point of whether or not that was an our side thing or a their side thing, it certainly seemed to be a surprising thing to many of the usual suspects in the yeah. media. So, you, you, you know, your point about intel could be correct maybe they don't even maybe they're getting on the phone with their bosses and going is this us they had no idea what was going on in ukraine it seemed at almost any time our foreign policy people had 
or, you know, the fake administration's foreign policy people had no idea what was going on at any point. It was really incredible to witness. Anyway, man, we're coming up on almost two hours. So um, let's uh, we'll call a pause on this one and we'll get back at it um, soon. I hope I made some sense. I was uh, you did. I, I made some sense. To me. <laughs> um, tell everybody where they can find you. Yeah, you can uh, check my stuff out at burningbright.substack.com. And uh, I'm on True Social at Burning Bright. Uh, that's it for now. All right, man. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks. Thanks for having thank, me. Thank you. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!